All right, joining me today is Jordan Tagani. He is uh, a second time appearance here on Software Defined Talk, and he's now the CEO of Mother Duck. But more importantly, Jordan, you're becoming the unofficial Software Defined Talk uh, big data analyst. It's a it's a, a title with incredible um, you know benefits, but no pay. So hopefully you you'll uh, take that role on as we uh, talk about big data today. So anyway, welcome back to the show. Uh, why don't you give us a quick uh, introduction of who you are for those that are meeting you for the first time and what you're up to right now. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for having me on again. I guess uh, I didn't um, uh, turn off the audiences too much the first time I, the first time we talked. Uh, and I, I do take the official or unofficial uh, analytics person uh, uh, as uh, as quite an honor. So thank you. Thank you for uh, for having me on again. Uh, yeah. So my you know, my background, um, I, uh, I was a software engineer for 20 years, uh, helped start Google BigQuery. Uh, as an engineer, um, led the team for a while on the engineering side and then switched to product and led the team on the product side, then jumped over to single store. And I was a chief product office there for, officer there for a couple of years. And most recently started, um, you know, left to start Mother Duck uh, just about a year ago. I think um, the, our incorporation date was two days ago in 2022. So uh, we're just one, just one year old. Um, and um, yeah, I think we're doing, doing some interesting stuff. Yeah, excellent. So yeah, we definitely want to get into what Mother Duck is doing. And I want you to tell the story of the name here in a little bit. So that'll be a little tease for people to to keep listening. But I thought I wanted the reason I wanted to have you specifically on was you wrote this uh, blog post. It's sort of I think the title is uh, Big Data is Dead, which is which is great. One great, great title. It's very provocative just in its in just reading that one sentence. But I thought more importantly is, you know, you're sort of I think of you as like, been around big data for a long time, certainly had a lot of influence in the industry, you know, written the book and things like that. So it's interesting, someone that's spent so much time to kind of to write it, write about that. So I kind of wanted to pick through your, your thinking on that, because I think it's very interesting. So but why don't we level set this? Because um, big data can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. So why don't we start with like, when you think of big data, what's sort of a layman's definition that you use um, to describe it? Yeah, there's a couple of different ones that are that I think are interesting. Um, the first one, you know, is really you know, big data is what you can't do on one machine, and um, uh, I think that that's one that sort of resonates with people, and I think that's what sort of drove people towards towards these new techniques. Uh, you know, back in the big big beginning of the big data craze, when they realized that they couldn't fit stuff on their machine. Um, there's another sort of interesting one that I talk about a little bit in the blog post, which is. You know, big data is when, you know, the cost of keeping data around is less than the cost of figuring out what to throw away. And um, and that's sort of like that's the mechanism by which you acquire big data. And uh, and I think that was also kind of a change that started happening is, you know, storage costs, storage costs plummeted. And over time, you know, the amount of data being generated has has been increasing as well. So then people end up with these just sort of massive amounts of amounts of data and then they figured they needed new ways of uh, of handling them. Yeah, I think it's interesting. You know, I think there's some kind of analogy here to like even like desktop and Macs. It's like, uh, you know, at the end of the hard drive, spinning, spinning platter era of disk, right? They got so big that you could just like keep everything. Like for everything you ever had in your entire life, there's just like, why not, right? And then uh, there's 
kind of flipped over to SSDs, right? And then suddenly it's like, oh, those that got a lot more expensive, right? So then I think at least I did, like you sort of kind of went back through your files and were like, uh, I'm not going to spend that much money on my new computer. What what do I really need? And what data can I either just delete or uh, get rid of it? So I think that that's really true in organizations. True. I think, you know, this like, hey, everybody, you know, at least has this feeling that we need to have more data and we need to keep data. So well, maybe we should start there a little bit around, you know, what are you seeing in the industry is for, because I think there's this belief that like more companies are just generating more and more data. And there's sort of like this infinite growth of data. I think if you just sort of ask someone, we would just say that, like whether it's a grocery store or a financial system or something along those lines. Um, but, but is that really true when we think of like big data sets like you're describing, like what are you actually seeing uh, in the industry today? So yeah, I think um, there's there's a couple parts of that, um, and I'll I'll address I'll address the uh, you know the size data that people actually are using uh, first, which is you know there's just a lot of businesses and a lot of cases where you don't people just don't have don't have big data for the most part. You know the amounts you know the amounts of data that people people analyze uh, the the size data that they actually query is pretty small. The size data that they have is pretty small. If you think about you know, keeping, you know, a thousand data points for a thousand customers for a thousand days, like that's only, that's only a billion entries. Like that's not really a huge amount of data anymore. And, you know, a lot of SaaS businesses, they don't have a thousand customers and they don't have a thousand touch points with their customers every day. Uh, And, you know, they haven't had them for three years. So, um, you know, I think that there's just a lot of cases where people don't have a lot of data. And then over time, people do tend to, you know, may, may collect a lot of data, but um, the, most of the workloads that people actually do are based, you know, are, are much smaller than that over smaller amounts of data. And, um, and then I think, you know, one of the reasons for that is just, there's a recency bias. Um, but it, there's, there's the other side of it. And I think this is the, this is sort of the, what's, what gets interesting with the whole big data is dead idea is that kind of the, I, the, the thing that you talked about first, which is that the amount of data is growing exponentially is actually true. And so, um, you know, I, I think that that can be true as well as the fact that most people don't have don't have big data or big data is, you know, big data analysis techniques are irre- irrelevant for, for many organizations or, or the vast majority of organizations. And I think one of the reasons th- that, that that's true is, you know, as more and more data gets generated, um, the cost to process the data is not actually decreasing. So unless you want your cost to increase exponentially, you have to figure out how to reduce reduce the size of that data to something that you can that you can handle um, more more easily. And the you know it's even you know you think about um, I think an interesting stat I saw says that the, the amount of data generated is increasing by an order of magnitude every five years. So you've, you've you know fast forward out fifteen years which is sort of the amount of time of a, of a kind of an enterprise, you know, a procurement life cycle. And, uh, and that's a thousand X increase in the amount of, in the amount of data. And unless you want your, you know, your cost to increase a thousand X, you really have to figure out how to, how to tame that, that amount of data. And, you know, the networking speeds are not increasing that much. So data is being generated in lots of different locations and just try to centralize, t- centralize all of that data is going to be, is going to be prohibitive. And then, um, you know, the, even the data storage sizes, like the, the amount of storage hardware being built is not, is not going to keep up with that. So I think that, um, 
the sort of I think the interesting flip side of big data is dead is that yes, data is increasing massively, but uh, the only way, yeah, I think the only way to actually be able to handle that is to is to somehow figure out how to tame that big data so that it's not it's not quite so big anymore. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think, you know, kind of underlying inside of your post, I felt like something that came through to me was this idea around no matter how much data you have, like the data you care about is like the recent data. Like it just feels like there's some kind of rule. Like I can give you like, I don't know, one year, five years or a hundred years of data, but you're probably going to end up looking at that, whatever, past 90 days, 30 days, you know, maybe six months uh, first. And I don't know, I don't know is, and I'd like your take on this is like, I don't know if that's either like a missed opportunity or there's just a reality there of like what's interesting is like what's happening now. Like you probably already you looked at the historical stuff. There's just not much to glean from it. Like what's your take on that? Like why is it so why is there so much recency bias with data analysis? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, it's a little bit like, you know, there's every, every once in a while like this this meme comes up in movies about like people only use like 14 percent of their brains. And what <laughs> if we could use 100 percent of our brains? Imagine how smart we would be. Right. It's like the other parts of our brains are actually used for different things. They're not actually the, the gray matter. They're like the, the stuff that's like connective tissue. So it's sort of it's sort of, you know, abs- absurd on the on the face of it. And, it. and I think people say the same thing about their data. It's like, oh, we're only using I think there is actually a. a um, uh, Seagate came out with a report that said, you know, uh, business users only only actually use, use something like fourteen percent of their data. It's you know it's in the low in the low double double digits, um, and you know they, they use that as like, oh, imagine if you could if you could use all of the data, and it's just for the most part, a lot of that data is not particularly useful. It's okay, you have a bunch of these access logs, uh, and they you know they they sit there, and for the most part, I mean, you don't want to be computing over those every day. Like maybe you need to go back and find something every once in a while. But uh, what you really care about is, hey, what's going on right now? What's going on? What happened this week? What happened last? What happened in the last two weeks? What happened in the last month? Um, and you also think about like the, you know, kind of the dashboards that you that you run to, to show your business. Um, the more up to date those are, the, you know, the, basically the more reactive your business is going to be. First of all, uh, you know, you want to see, okay, how's this marketing campaign doing? Um you know, you want to look at today's numbers. You don't want to look at last month's numbers. Uh, and if you're rerunning like the same query, you know, so often what happens is like, you know, you run a sliding window of like 30 days. Um, but that means like the first time you run that, um, you know, for the current day, you're analyzing, you're analyzing the, the data, but then you're kind of rerunning the same query uh, for 29 more days. And so there's actually sort of the opportunities there to, uh, to cache that data, to, 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 to do less work. Um, but we did find, you know, in BigQuery. So one of the things that uh, was was uh, kind of key for for, for us for a, from a um, a revenue perspective was was how long people keep their data around. Because if people are deleting, you know, people are people are realizing, hey, I don't use this old data very much, and deleting the data, then they can't go back and query it. And so we wanted them to, you know, the data that's old, you know, basically is is it just sits there on disk. It's very inexpensive to, you know. To, to, to store. And so we're trying to figure out how to get people to store more of it. So I did look at these, like sort of the, the recency of, uh, of data, and it was really surprising how, uh, how, how quickly it dropped off. And, and, and for the most part, you know, data that was more than 90 days uh, really, you know, rarely, rarely gets used. And, you know, yes, people do run like, okay, yearly reports and 
uh, you know, well, how does this compare to like something that happened three years ago? And maybe you look at like, okay, well, has this kind of security problem ever happened before? But, you know, those tend to be really one-off things or things that you, I mean, you don't need to run yearly reports very often. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I, I do think probably just like all of us can think about our jobs, right? You know, you're, you're worried about like either what happened in the past month, what you're going to do. And then, you know, there's sort of some quarterly or yearly reports you kind of go back and look at. So it makes, it makes a lot of sense to me. So I think, um, I think I, I get that part of it. So now I think the other part that I wanted to dive into is sort of like, what has changed? And I think you have like a little, it's almost like a history time with Jordan here. I love it. You know, it's sort of, uh, and I think this is an interesting idea is that you kind of make the case that really what has happened here is we've kind of separated compute and storage. Let's say, I don't know, I'm just going to pick 20 years. You can pick some ar- arbitrary 15 years. And then, and that's really kind of changed the nature of how we view it. So, so maybe take us through like what has happened? How did compute and storage get detached? And why is that important to kind of this big data conversation? Sure. So I think for a long time, kind of people were realizing that uh, they needed they needed to they needed to scale. Scaling up was expensive, and then so they were kind of uh, building some scale out system. A, a lot of you know I'm, I'm a database person, uh, analytics in particular, and so you know I you know tend to focus on that. But you know like people were building. They call them shared nothing uh, in the in the database literature, which means like there you basically have it's sort of like sharding the database. You have there's no there's nothing that is shared, no no CPU, no memory, no disk between um, between those systems, and then they can off they can run completely independently. From like if everything is working super well, that that's really nice. Of course, the difficulty comes when you need to do a join, etc. But um, the uh, and so that's kind of the way the database research uh, and the database industry was going. And then, um, you know, the separation of storage and compute came along or became po- possible with the, you know, the kind of the rise of the, the these large object stores, um, you know, S3, Google Cloud Storage, Azure Blob Store. And the, the key thing that they offered was virtually unlimited bandwidth to the uh, to, to the disk. And, you know, it used to be the kind of like if you had a, a machine and had like a couple of a couple of disks, you know, that was a that was a huge bottleneck. And you couldn't really have a lot of people hammering on that same disk because, you know, if you think about a you know spinning platter disk, you know, where the head, you know, you where the head is, is really important. And so if you have to if you have a bunch of different processes or a bunch of different, you know, machines kind of causing that to ping pong around, um, you know, that's going to be, that's going to be incredibly inefficient. And in a lot of databases, like, you know, worried, worked on algorithms to, to, to avoid moving that. Like it was just, um, uh, it was a problem that is not necessarily there anymore when you have, um, when you have these really large object stores that, you know, they have under the covers, they, they generally still have spinning disks, but they have, you know, 200,000 of them. And so <laughs> you can, you know, the bandwidth is really kind of 200,000 times, whatever the, the, um, the, the bandwidth is of a, um, you know, of a disk you might have, or, you know, a server that you might have running in your data centers. And yeah, there were networks attached storage, et cetera, and stuff like that. But those, those tended to be, you know, reasonably expensive and, and specialized. And, you know, in the, in the, the days of object stores, uh, now they, now, like the ability to um, have this, you know, infinite bandwidth, uh, you know, system, uh, you know, became became possible for everybody. So instead of building shared nothing, um, you know, people like you know BigQuery and Snowflake built shared uh, shared disk systems. And so basically, they 
Um, and that really allowed the kind of the amount of data stored to grow completely independently from the amount of, of compute that was being used. And, uh, and I think that's also one of the, you know, cause the, the problem with shared nothing is, uh, is you have to get it exactly right. You have to, you have to, it's a lot of work to, uh, to basically position the data where, where it needs to be. You have to sort of, you know, actively partition the data versus a shared disk system. You just throw it all, you know, where, you know, just throw it all in, um, uh, in some, in some files, you know, you can, uh, optimize how you store those files, but um, you don't really have to be nearly as careful about about how it how it works. Yeah, and maybe just you know for all of us, like you, you mentioned, shared nothing there a couple of times. Like, what what do you mean by that? Um, yeah, so like, I mean, if you if you take let's say you like take you know MySQL or something, and and okay, you can scale up your MySQL, uh, and then you run out of you run out of you know, either you need more uh, disk than you can fit on that single machine or you need more compute. So you basically say, all right, I'm just going to say, I'm going to partition this MySQL by by user ID. And so I'm going to run two of those. And so user IDs that are odd go on one machine and then user IDs that are even go on one machine. That's that's great. You know, basically I can send, if I'm just looking up user IDs. I can, I can send, you know, if I'm looking for an odd numbered user, I send to the one. If I'm using looking for an even number user, I send to the other one. If you're doing an analytic query where I'm counting users, well, I have to send that. I have to send that to both of them. But um, you know, I still, uh, you know, lets me kind of scale scale well. But the problem is then, okay, well, let's, let's say now I need now I need three systems. Now I have to move. Ha- I have to worry about moving half of them, uh, you know, from one to the other. Or then I, or let's say I want to do joins against you know, orders. Well, maybe really what I really wanted to do was I wanted to, to partition them by orders and not by users. Like, so the world just gets a lot more complicated mm-hmm. um, versus a shared disk system where basically everybody shares the same disk. Uh, it's, I'm a lot like, you, you can be a lot more dynamic about how you, how you read the data. Right. Makes sense. So that gives you a lot of, a lot of options there. So, so it is kind of interesting, you know, I think it's something maybe we just take for granted, you know, now with cloud computing is like, I don't know. I guess it would be EMC back in the day, right? You'd call your EMC rep and they would send, sell you these just unbelievably expensive storage machines, which I'm sure they still sell. I'm sure if we called them, they'd be happy to give it to us. But really, I think what you're kind of keying in on there and the part that kind of, you know, I take from it is is really it's it's not just how much data, it's the bandwidth, right? We all can just have this like super fast access to storage, right? For kind of, you know, by just throwing it in S3 or the Google file system or whatever, right? That's sort of just, the benefit. And I think that's to your point, it's, it's kind of why um, it's so easy for us all now to store data. Right. And I think kind of back to what my example earlier, it's like uh, if you had to go ask your boss to go call the EMC rep, they probably tell you, no, they probably tell you like <laughs> summarize that data and delete it. Right. Now they just sort of just shuffles off to S3 and then maybe we should just touch on the computing. Right. Maybe it's, it's, maybe it's obvious, but maybe it's worth just talking about. Right. It's like you're, when you say about that, it's just like, yeah, now we can all fire up EC2 servers of any size almost, right. To analyze the data, right. Is that kind of what you're talking about when we kind of, you know, the benefits of separating it? Yeah. So, so, um, you know, I think, you know, as, as, you know, as the data sizes increased, um, the, you know, object storage and the sort of separation of storage and compute were, were, you know, we're basically able to handle as much storage, as much storage as you need. And then, you know, you can also spin up, as many instances in, in parallel as you need to, as you need to, to be able to read that data. Um, but I think one of the interesting things that, you know, especially as sort of the, the data sizes get larger 
is you don't the the compute sizes don't increase nearly as fast as the as the data sizes. And I think in general, you know, that's partly because a lot of you know because of recency bias, um, um, because of you know, you know, a lot of the times you, what you can do is you know you you uh, you know segment elimination is a is a process where you you only have to end up reading portions of of the files or portions of the data. Um, you know, other, other techniques where, you know, you just read headers, et cetera, like, like very, it's, it's very, it's pretty rare to have to scan, to scan all of your data. So uh, if you double the amount of data, you don't necessarily need to double the amount of nodes. You might just compute nodes. You might just need to add a, one more, one more compute node. And I think this is sort of one of the, the factors that sort of leads to, um, you know, what I was talking about in the end of, end of big data or big data is dead in that um, like, once you kind of have infinite infinite storage and you're not using these um, these sort of shared nothing systems anymore, uh, you might really not you might not need very many compute nodes. And if you don't need very many compute nodes, like and as Moore's law is you know inexorably increasing the size of our the size of our machines, uh, maybe you only need one. And if you only need one compute node, then you know your life looks different and the systems that you build look look a lot different. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's, it's really interesting when you touched on Moore's Law there. It's sort of like, I guess it's just sort of stating, again, stating the obvious, but it's sort of like as compute and storage gets, you know, both, I guess, cheaper and faster, what was once maybe a big data problem, like even if you went back to the 90s, right, it's just, you know, something that's fairly simple to do on one machine, which just simplifies everyone's life, right? Now, suddenly, you don't have to do all the complicated things that are required in distributed computing, right? And so... Uh, and I think the underlying that is, I, I think, is sort of like kind of the interesting thing of where we're going. So, so maybe we should talk a little bit about, like, like maybe just give us an example of like. So, there's going to be a few outliers, right? There's probably going to be legitimate big data companies, right? I mean, we we'll talk about that in a second, like what that means. But, like, what is a data size like uh, that you think most companies are, you know, dealing with today? And then let's figure out and talk about if, if we don't have to do big data, what do we have to do with it now? Uh, sure. Um, but before I get to that, I think it's, it's related. I, I do want to get back to the, the Moore's law question that you're there, you know, thing that you brought up, which is, um, you know, I think in the, you know, the last 10 years, the last 20 years, people have talked about, oh, the, you know, Moore's law is ending because, you know, it used to be that CPU speeds got faster every, every, every couple of years or kept, kept getting faster. And, um, but Moore's law actually hasn't stopped. Moore's law is just saying that under a single piece of, you know, uh, size of silicon, you, the amount of transistors you can you can pack on that doubles, you know, roughly every eighteen months. And if you plot actually the 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 transistor counts of you know various CPUs over the last fifty years, it's almost exactly a straight line on a logarithmic chart, which means it's a pure a pure exponential that isn't that you know hasn't hasn't really changed. So twenty years ago, when people started doing MapReduce. Um, the amount of processors on a production, sorry, the amount of transistors on, on a production processor were one one thousandth of what you can do of what you see nowadays. So three orders of magnitude. We have three orders of magnitude more power. And so if you just think about, um, you know, yeah, you know, like the the hardware has increased by by a thousand x. There's going to be a lot fewer things that you need to to scale out and do multiple and, and use, use, you know, multiple pieces of hardware when a single, uh, basically what you can do on a single, uh, a single 
die has increased by by a thousand times and um and so i think you know the the you know what you would call big data sort of getting back to your getting back to your question um has really dramatically changed over over that amount of time i remember like you know a hundred megabyte file you know trying to trying to process that on my laptop and that was like that was too um basically that was too big. I was like, Oh, this is taking forever. And like, you know, downloading it over my, you know, 3,600 baud modem uh, takes, takes forever. And, you know, much easier to do this in the cloud, much easier to sort of scale out and split it apart. Um, and, uh, and nowadays, like, you know, I think, um, you know, you know, with modern, modern laptops, you know, the Apple M2 laptops are incredibly powerful. George Fraser, the, uh, CEO of Fivetran just did a, a, a blog post where he compared uh, his two-year-old Mac laptop, um, you know, his M1 M1 laptop against a uh, 16-core cloud data warehouse that you know shall remain uh, unnamed. But you know, he, he basically you know running a TPC benchmark, you know, kind of industry standard um, data warehousing benchmark uh, was faster on his laptop. And, um, and I think that just sort of shows the kind of the increase, the, the increase in power that we've seen, uh, over the last, um, over the last 20 years. So, you know, um, you know, in terms of what's small data, what's, you know, medium sized data, I think certainly, you know, anything less than a gigabyte is pretty tiny data. Um, kind of anything less than a terabyte, I would say is still not, is still not big data. And I think if you're, if your workloads, if your if your workloads rather than your data set size, is less than a terabyte, I think that's still that's still small data. Um, you know, by by comparison. So there was actually I'm working on another blog post about scaling up, and I was looking at the old Dremel paper, which is kind of the the paper was you know VLDB in 2008 when Google started talking about Dremel, which was its sort of massive scale out system. Dremel was the underlying query engine behind Google BigQuery. And, um, you know, they used 3000 nodes of Dremel. Uh, they queried over an 87 terabyte data set. They were only using three columns. So it was only half a terabyte of data. Uh, you know, again, that, you know, it's where I talk about like, you know, often you have very large data set sizes, but you're actually only looking at a small, a small portion of the data at a time. Um, and, you know, what you, you know, what, what was being done on 3000 nodes of, of Dremel you know, you can do on a single machine in AWS these days and a single, you know, not one of the exotic machines. Um, I was comparing it with the i4i, which is like a memory optimized instance that's available in a lot of different regions. It's about $10, uh, about $10 an hour. And um, it's got 128 cores and terabyte of RAM. And, you know, basically the, you know, if you kind of run the numbers, you can, you can run that query in the same, you know, basically the same or faster time. Uh, you can do it a lot faster if the data is stored in, you know, staged in memory. Uh, you can do it a lot faster or significantly faster if the data is stored, um, is cached on SSD, like Snowflake caches, you know, caches hot data on SSD. That's how it, how it gets a lot of its performance. Uh, if you have to read it all from object store, the network uh, I/O is bandwidth is still is still a little bit too limited to 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 to, to be able to do that. Um, but you know, faster 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 NICs are coming. There are machines on AWS these days that have 800 gigabit NICs, and um, and those you know that would be enough to read all the data from from Object Store. So that's an 87 terabyte uh, 87 terabyte workload that you know 
really legitimately can run on a single machine. Um, so, you know, and I think the, you know, as, as I, you know, was saying like the, 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 the use cases that where you need big data are kind of, are getting smaller and smaller. You know, if you fast forward out two years, five years, um, you know, that's going to be, that's going to be even less. Yeah, no, that, that all makes sense. And so kind of continuing on that theme. So let's think about, let's just use that. So maybe 87 terabytes, maybe that's the upper limit, let's say on the one machine, but you know, I, and I think I said before, I think most people aren't going to have that much data, or at least they're not going to be doing it. So maybe, maybe I got a terabyte, maybe I got five terabytes or something along those lines. Uh, I believe you, you, you know, you've listened to this conversation and it's like, okay, I don't want to go down the big query route and, you know, the more complicated route. So it maybe this kind of gets into what you're doing at mother duck. Like what, you know, what should I be doing? What's a simpler way for me to start doing some analysis um, in a new approach to that? Yeah. And I think you should, I think you should let your kind of your needs drive you, you know, the, um, you know, the, the, your architecture. And, and I think one of the reasons that I kind of, you know, got have gotten riled up riled up about this is just you know realizing that um you know over time the performance differences between databases basically go away you know i mean people do a lot of benchmarking oh a couple years ago there was like the databricks versus snowflake you know feud about you know which one is faster and these tpc benchmarks um that was incidentally one of the things that you know first got me started thinking about about data size because they were using a hundred terabyte as their uh, as their data set size in this in this war, and I'm like, really nobody is nobody is doing queries at that at that scale, and um, you know because we'd had in BigQuery we'd had um, you know some of the largest customers in the world, uh, you know Walmart, uh, Home Depot, um, uh, Snapchat, like there's a, a bunch of big banks. And, um, and they didn't do, they didn't do queries of that size. They didn't really even do queries at a 10th of that size. And the ones that they did weren't even, you know, weren't really intended to be interactive. Um, you know, most of the queries they did were, you know, again, in the, in the, in the, in the gigabyte sizes. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, so the, you know, the, 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 the benchmarks, uh, that, that, um, that, uh, that people were running, um, at the, um, you know, at the large, larger scale, we're sort of not necessary. And, and so like, if, if you get this compression in performance over time, because really there's no, there's no magic that any of these companies is doing. It's like, yeah, they're kind of, you know, they work on the optimizer and there's, there's certain things you can do and there's certain techniques and that like, you know, TPC, you know, H uh, query nine, um, you know, it's hard to get a good query plan for that, but if your optimizer can optimize that one, then you can get a much better score on that. And over time, kind of everybody is going to get to basically the same, the same point, or at least within a factor of two. And if, and you know, performance differences are within a factor of two. Um, probably that's that shouldn't be the thing that drives your your purchasing decision because you know if if a dashboard takes you know one second versus two seconds to load, okay, that's that's interesting, but like, what about the security features? What about the, you know, the usability? What about, you know, is it actually gonna, you know, can you integrate it with all the things that you want to integrate it with? You know, the the UX uh, issues become a lot more, a lot more salient and a lot more interesting. And, um, and so there's a database, um, 
uh, started by a couple of academics in uh, in Amsterdam called called DuckDB, and uh, and I you know I started seeing that and it was it was fascinating to me because you know they really focused on the the kind of the experience of a, of a database rather than the pure performance and and it is quite fast and if but there was there was a Twitter thread um, a couple of months ago where somebody said like why is DuckDB so fast. And people, you know, people offered all sorts of like, you know, oh, because it's vectorized. Oh, because they do all these, you know, fancy things. And they do a lot of fancy things. And they are kind of up on like basically the newest research. And, and um, uh, but really like it, it, there's no, there isn't, you know, again, there's no magic. Um, the reason, the thing that makes it fast is that they, they get the experience right. So if you think about like a query as like three pieces, there's the, the piece that happens when you submit the query until it gets to the database. There's the piece that happens when, when it starts running on the database until it's done. And then there's the, and then there's the part where you return your results back. You know, virtually every database out there focuses on that middle piece. And certainly at BigQuery, it's sort of like you, you give us your query. Uh, that's when our, that's when our timer starts. And then then we start, you know, optimizing it. And then we we're done. That's when we're done. Um, and uh, and we optimized the hell out of that, and then but the pieces on the end we really didn't even know or 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 care. And to give an example, like there was a bug or a poorly implemented uh, JDBC driver. JDBC is the way that you know m- many applications interact with uh, with the database. It's sort of a protocol, and you know it's the driver that converts what applications know how to talk the language applications know how to talk versus the language that the database knows how to talk. And there were some just some weird things in kind of how we had set up BigQuery that wasn't how like most other databases are, uh, you know, including like if you do select star, we make a full copy of the database um, or of the table. Um, but, you know, some other, other sort of just things like that with paging, et cetera. And so th- these JDBC drivers were adding, you know, like three to 10 seconds to every query that ran. And we had no idea. And so we're focusing on like, okay, well, how do we get this from a second and a half to like, you know, 500 milliseconds. Um, and we, we spent a ton of work on that. And then the fact, and then somebody in these, these drivers were adding, you know, several additional seconds onto the, onto the query. And that wasn't something that we cared about. Now that's certainly, you know, in the last couple of years, like the JDBC drivers have kind of come in house and done a lot of work on, on, on improving those, but there's sort of, there's still sort of an afterthought. It's sort of not part of the testing process. It's not part of how people think about like what is the essence of the database. And so DuckDB really focused on the problem of like uh, kind of the, the the beginning and the end and of like, okay, well, uh, you know, it's an in-process database. So it's just a library that you link in. Um, you know, we can create an API that gives you, you know, columnar, columnar chunks rather than having to convert those into convert those into rows. Um and uh, and you can do things just sort of much 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 faster and more and more efficiently. And so the the impression that a lot of users have is that it's like it's a much faster it's a much faster database because it's actually faster for them. But if you just look at sort of okay when the query starts and the query ends, it may not it may not actually be any different. It might even be slower than some of these other these other systems. Um, I also think that you know that it's one of the nice things about having a single node database is that. Um, because you, because it's a lot, a lot of things are a lot simpler, you can move much faster. And so DuckDB, I think is getting better 
at a faster rate than a lot of these other these other databases. And so I think where there are performance gaps that you know those those gaps will get um, will get closed. Um, but yeah, just to sort of summarize, I think it's the uh, the important the important thing is the is kind of the database the database user experience these days, and not so much the um, the, the the pure performance numbers. Yeah, I think you said a lot in there and it's some really interesting things. It's like, I guess I kind of think of it as sort of like if you sort of understand your the size of your data and you sort of kind of back away from the needing to like jump into big data that you then can look at other solutions that are just simpler, right? We talk a lot about developer experience. That's something we always talk about with like Kubernetes and microservices and things like that. And, and you know, the more that you start to do it, it's just more complicated it gets, right? And I think the same thing in big data. So there's an opportunity if you just can do things in a more simple way. It's just the learning curve is just so much easier, right? You're not spending your time, if you will, configuring or using like very complicated databases. You can kind of you know do the job that you that you set out to do. So I mean that's exciting. That's exciting for all of us. And I always think of like maybe that's like you know underlying all of this is like hey Moore's law. Like it makes things simpler, right? Because it lets us go from like very distributed thinking, which maybe not, we're all not great at, or maybe only some of us are great at and down to like, Oh, I can just kind of like, I can get my, my beefy Mac M2 and just kind of do everything I want to do and like learn it. Um, or in my case, you know, play with Python and Jupyter notebooks and like have these big data sets, at least I think they're big, even though they're really, really small. So I like that. So that's duck DB. And that's sort of like the beginning, I think of where you got the idea for mother duck. So what are you doing uh, with duck DB and what's kind of the mother? I guess I, I, I told everyone in the beginning, what is the origin of the mother duck name and what are you doing at mother duck? Sure. So, um, so we're building serverless duck DB. So we're kind of, we're putting duck DB in the cloud, uh, making it, making it serverless. We're building this sort of hybrid execution system. And I can talk about that uh, if, uh, if, if, if it's interesting, but um, you know, we, you know, uh, you know, we're working with the duck, with the duck TV team. And, um, and so kind of since, since we are the, you know, marshalling all these sort of duck DB instances, uh, you know, hence sort of the name, the name mother duck, um, the name actually was, it was named by Lloyd tab, the, uh, the looker founder. Um, you know, he was, uh, he was sort of brainstorming, brainstorming with me. Um, I wanted to call it something much more like, basic like uh subquery i'm like oh it's a smaller you know instances subquery and it's like he's like he's like mother duck and i'm like ha 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 and he's like uh, you know plus the domain names available and i looked at the domain name it was like fifty thousand dollars and i'm like ha 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 like that's, <laughs> that's absurd um and he's like no seriously that's a good name uh and that's not a lot to pay for a domain name uh and um and sure enough you know it turned into a it, it turned out to be a good name i was quite nervous about it at first and like in all the initial documents i put you know mother duck and then in parentheses working name because i'm like oh we'll find something we'll find something else but that was sort of the best one that we had so far and then it just sort of grew on me and you know it's uh it's sort of fun to be named after you know after an animal and there's all sorts of you know playful playful puns you know duck puns uh, i think the best engagement that we get you know on on social media is like you know, one of our, 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 our the, the head of our product management, he's, uh, he likes to post duck ponds and, um, you know, people, people, you know, spend a lot of time, uh, giving him, uh, 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 you know, 
getting upset about it, uh, about the, uh, you know, groaning about the duck puns. Um, but hey, any engagement is good. Hey man, dad jokes, duck puns, whatever you got to do to, to get people to respond to you. So that's, that's cool. No, I like, I love the name mother duck. It's cool. And it, like built in mascot, right? It, it gives a lot of creative people. I think like lots of stuff to do. So, okay. So mother ducks, you're doing the serverless. So I mean, tell the story there. So like, like why serverless? Why do we need the serverless interface to DuckDB? Like kind of what, what was your thinking? Sure. I think, um, I think scale. Everybody, you know, you know, everybody sort of focuses on scale up and how big we, how big you can scale. And I think one of the really important things actually is scale down, and you know, being able to scale down to zero. Like at single store, we originally like um, tied our smallest instance size to the smallest instance size of Snowflake. You know, just sort of roughly in terms of the amount of hardware. And then, um, and then we realized, you know, hey, you know, people keep asking for for something that's even smaller. And so we did one that was half the size and people kept asking for something even smaller. We did something a quarter of the size. And then people asked for something even smaller. We're like, Oh, we can't really make the cogs work. The costs, the costs work at that, at that, at that, you know, there is a, there is a minimum threshold at which like, you know, just the overhead of, of running the, running the, the, the servers and the backups and all this is just, is less than what you could, what you could charge for it. And I think there's just, if you're a developer or if you're somebody kind of hacking on something, um, you know, you want something that, you know, is kind of, you know, inexpensive uh, when you're using it and, you know, doesn't doesn't cost you anything when you're when you're not using it. And, you know, there are systems that, you know, will auto auto shut down, but you're still having to manage your instances. And I think one of the things that I think was really successful about BigQuery and that I um, uh and I'm kind of quite proud that we we did was that it's just it's instanceless. You don't have to worry about okay, what's my BigQuery instance? How what's the size? You just you just run your query. You just walk up. You type your you know you load your data. You type your query. Uh, you pay while the query is running. You don't pay that while the query is not. And um, and there's just a really really simple model about that. And there's also a bunch of patterns that we you know we see where people want to run. You know, people are building SaaS systems and they want to run one instance per one of their customers. And if you can't, you know, so they might have, you know, very high instance counts. And so if you can't scale those down to zero, um, you know, that's going to be sort of a massive, a massive cost. And the nice thing about DuckDB is it's so lightweight. It can run in the, so, so, so lightweight, we can run the browser. It's about 80 megs. So, you know, the binary can run in a tiny amount of memory. And so you really can have an instance running, um, but, you know, for almost no, almost no cost, you know, you can run, you know, a thousand of them on a, on a single virtual machine and, um, and, you know, and make it, and make it work. And so there's some, you know, I think just a different, um, a different style. And I think that that's going to, you know, f- for the size data and the, you know, the, the workloads that, that people actually have, you know, that seemed to be more, more important than, um, you know, scaling down is more important than, than scaling up. Yes. Yeah, so you get kind of all the benefits there, right? Like just get, get the database out of my way. I just want to come in do my work and, and, you know, serverless obviously, you know, kind of makes that real simple. So let's make sure we give people some, uh, some things they can do. I know the audience likes to try stuff. So let me make sure I get it all right. So now DuckDB, is it open source? It's free to use. Am I correct me here? Am I, uh, yes. I can DuckDB. download that. Anyone can go ahead. DuckDB is open source. It's MIT, MIT licensed, uh, pip installed DuckDB. Um, you know, if you want the, the Python, um, Python client, uh, there's a JDBC driver that you can just download. There's, um, you know, Mac, 
um, you know, basically for every any architecture, there's, you know, you can install it and use the uh, use the command line client. You can go to shell.duckdb.org and you can get a live shell DuckDB shell in your browser. Um, it's uh, it's it's super easy to uh, to use. I also just want to mention kind of the the relationship we have with with the DuckDB team because. Um, you know, we are not the the DuckDB team. We do have a, a partnership with with them that's uh, that's very close. They are, you know, um, you know, actually, uh, we have a, a a strong relationship with them, and um, you know, we talk to them. We talk to them every week. Uh, they are strongly supportive of what we're of what we're doing. Um, but you know, we are. Uh, you know, sometimes people kind of get confused and they think Mother Duck and DuckDB are the same same thing. So I just also just want to mention that um, we are independent uh, independent organizations, um, but I think we have pretty aligned goals. You know, which is to sort of make make DuckDB uh, ubiquitous and uh, and and awesome. And the the DuckDB team um, are you know they do own part of part of Mother Duck. Um, so you know we wanted to make sure that we didn't just sort of when we started, we didn't just sort of say, Hey, we're going to take your open source code and we're going to try to make a bunch of money off of it. You know, we said, you know, like, let's, let's, let's do something together. And if, if this works out, then it's going to work out well for, for you folks as, uh, as well. Um, and, uh, yeah. And so, so far that seems to be, seems to be working. Yeah. Well, it's always good to have aligned interests. So that, that's a uh, good work by you. So, okay. So if you want to try the free thing, go out to DuckDB and there's actually a bunch of tutorials online. It's, you know, it's actually, you know, just what you said there, it's pretty easy. You know, I don't know, fire it up in the Docker container of your choice is what I would do. That's what I'm playing around with it. Um, and then now where is mother duck on your product uh, version? Are you still developing? Are you live? Like what, what if I want to get with you? What, what kind of, what state are you guys in? You mentioned at the beginning, you're like a year old and I know you've been hard at work. So so give us an update of where Mother Duck's at. Yeah, it's so we're we're we've been coding for about nine months, um, and we are we have an alpha out. We have another alpha that's coming out in a couple in a couple of weeks. Uh, our launch date is our is uh, is coming up pretty soon. I don't want to necessarily me- mention it mention it now, but um, uh, we we are we are working uh, working up to a big a big launch uh, in the not not too distant future. Um, if you are interested in Mother Duck, um, you can sign up. For our um, uh, for our mailing list, it very very low spam on uh, on motherduck.com, and um, you know we also have a newsletter that kind of talks about what's going on in uh, in the DuckDB world that that you know um, uh, people may find interesting. Yeah, no, and you can get Jordan's great blog posts, right? You can find stuff like this. I don't know, maybe Jordan, maybe you got another provocative one coming out. So uh, why big data is that and things like that. So um, so that's good. So so maybe as we leave out here, as we kind of wrap up, so I think it's sort of like if I'm going to recommend it, and I want you to correct me here. So, so I'd say like, hey, if you've got like this, whatever, we're going to call it like whatever, one terabyte to 10 to 15 terabyte, like if I'm in that kind of world, right, before I ship off my data to, you know, like large analytics platforms that, you know, that may be complicated, right? It seems like it's worth my time to go take a look at DuckDB and then when Mother Duck is available, um, maybe I can probably do everything I need there. Was that kind of like, you think that's a reasonable thing for someone to take away? Someone that's sort of maybe got kind of, you know, trying to figure out their data strategy and they're kind of like grapple with this. Um, any other, you know, either correct me there or any other advice you'd kind of give someone trying to figure it all out? Yeah, absolutely. You know, as you can, you can get started with DuckDB super, super easily. And, um, you know, we think that most people, you know, may not need to graduate to one of these, uh, you know, large scale, um, you know, scale out, scale out cloud, cloud data systems that, uh, you know, uh, you know, 
DuckDB is a pretty is pretty extraordinary on its own. I think we're we're going to be building something pretty extraordinary um, with uh, with Mother Duck and um, and so yeah. I mean, I think we're not we're not trying to compete again with the cloud data warehouses, but we think that there's just a lot of you know use cases where you know those things are overkill and um, um, and so you know in order to make it just sort of easy to get you know easy to get started, you know, why not, why not try, uh, try the simple thing before you try the expensive thing? Yeah, I think that's a great place uh, to leave it. And that's kind of what I took away with it. Before I, I go to the big data warehouse, let me at least look at some other, some other options. So, uh, all right, Jordan, well, I've got your LinkedIn here, your Twitter, anywhere else someone should get available, uh, um, should reach out to you if they want to talk to you personally. No, I mean, I'm happy to like, you know, feel free to poke me on LinkedIn or Twitter, uh, and uh, I, you know, love talking about this, talking about this stuff. And so if you think it might be interesting, um, you know, don't hesitate to reach out. All right. Fantastic. Thanks a lot for coming on the show today, Jordan. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. If this is the first time you're listening to Software Defined Talk, then welcome. You definitely go subscribe to Software Defined Talk either at our website at softwaredefinedtalk.com or in your favorite podcast player. And also, if you would like a sticker that you can put on your laptop or your Tumblr or whatever you want, just email your postal address to stickers at softwaredefinedtalk.com and I will be happy to send you a sticker anywhere in the world. And with that, thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next time.